0: Welcome to the Protein Production Technology International Podcast. We explore the latest advancements in alternative proteins, from cultured meats to plant based proteins. We talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities of the alternative protein industry.
1: I'm delighted to be joined by Sue Garfitz, who is the CEO of the Netherlands-based fermentation specialist, The Protein Brewery. By developing novel ways of producing plant-based, nutritious food ingredients, The Protein Brewery is helping its customers in the food industry to easily produce healthy, nutritious and sustainable foods. And as we will learn in the next 30 minutes or so, its flagship product, Fermatine, is a true game changer. So, Sue, thank you for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to be speaking with you today. What's been your own journey into food tech?
0: Yeah, thanks for the question. There, delighted to be here. No, I've been in the food industry for over twenty-five years. I don't really want to give anything away in terms of age, but on that basis, I'm, uh, I, I suppose, in a sense, some may say, uh, a veteran. Uh, I've, and I started uh, my journey in the food industry really thinking about meeting consumer needs. That's I kind of wake up and go to bed thinking about what do consumers want. We're all consumers after all. And the food industry has such an enormous role to play in the choices that that people make uh, about the food that they consume. And that was always one of the the, the key kind of uh, principles of why I was so fascinated by the food industry. And uh, my journey through that has been with many different brands. Uh, I've been in some different, uh, many different food categories along the way. Uh, Soft drinks, I was with PepsiCo. I mean, some good kind of blue chip fmcg training uh, in that environment but then experimented in different food categories and the latest uh role that i had before coming to the protein brewery was with a company called alpro and i think that's where the opportunity to really start thinking about health and planet uh, in, in in a combined way really brought the planetary consideration of, and how we protect our planet and how we manage to make use of its resources Really close to my heart, uh, really close to my thinking, and that was one of the reasons why, of course, I was interested in uh, in the protein brewery. It's a step on from where uh, from the journey that I created uh, during my time at Alpro uh, pioneered very much around plant based food uh, and drink uh, and this is kind of the next generation and and that's what's so exciting about it because it's some uh, in a degree it's some un- uncharted territory. And I've always been a pioneer. I've always tried to bring things to consumers to bring them new ideas, mostly product-based, uh, and, and a way of presenting those products in an innovative and pioneering way.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what do you think you're going to bring to the table in terms of that experience you've had with those blue chip companies? Completely different ends of the scale.
0: Yeah, I think, well, first and foremost, uh, leadership, because it doesn't matter whether the business is, you know, comprises five or six people or actually 600 or 6,000. It really is about bringing leadership to the business. It's about bringing inspiration, and alongside that, a very clear vision about what we're trying to do. What What is it we want to be? What do we want to be famous for? And of course, what leaders do is they bring, they also enable. A part of that is to make sure that uh, in this journey, I can also uh, entice and encourage and persuade new investors to come to the Protein Brewery to believe in the technology that we've got and the story that we're, we're, the journey and the story that we're telling uh, and come come on that journey with us. Uh, So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is I've got quite a lot of experience in the food industry. Often, if you look at uh, biotech or food tech businesses, uh, there is a lot of technical and technological understanding, uh, mostly uh, uh, in food tech. But it's and biotech, sorry, but it's really about bringing uh, the food industry knowledge to that environment. The combination of those two is the most compelling because, in the end, we are making a a product uh, that consumers are going to eat, they're going to buy, they're going to eat as a food ingredient for sure. But in a sense, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the consumer eating and engaging with the product that we're making.
1: Mm -hmm. So, what are going to be your main goals um, for your time with the protein brewery?
0: Well, first and foremost, I'd go back to kind of the mission. I mean, the mission laid down actually by the founder, and I know we'll talk about that in a moment, is very, very important to me. Uh, It, it, In a sense, it provides a a framework, a guidance by which I kind of lead and make decisions on a a weekly or a monthly daily basis. And that's really to make sure that we can bring an alternative protein that we can scale to make it cost-effective and therefore available and accessible for everyone uh, alongside other plant proteins, but to really leave a minimal footprint on the planet. And that's what I, that's what I actually aspire to do in the big mission uh, that we have. On a, on a more concrete basis in terms of the goals, I'm here very clearly to scale the business. So we've moved from a pilot plant very clearly into our first scale-up plant. The synchronization, believe me, of managing commercialization and operationalizing the business is probably something we often take for granted in any industry, but it's one of the most challenging uh, uh, things to be able to do. And that takes most of my time, together with making sure that uh, uh, financially the business is sound and we can be a very, very good employer, in particular with the purpose that we have for many people, certainly in, uh, in Breda, but not exclusively, we've got uh, people also in the United States working for the Protein Brewery. So to be a really good employer, that, where people come along knowing that they're working for a business that has true purpose and a true mission.
1: Well, let's move on to the company itself now and its origins. Um, so when and how was the company founded and, and who was integral to setting it all up? And I, I guess, what was the inspiration behind it all?
0: So, it was founded by uh, a gentleman called Wim Delat, a bioscientist, that's his background. Uh, He's worked in many different environments, but notably uh, in DSM, Uh, that was his background. And he really wanted to make uh, an impact by being able to uh, utilise fungal uh, fermentation and to bring a much more compact and scalable solution as part of the next generation of alternative proteins. He had a a laboratory called uh, Bioscience and in that time he developed, well, he went through, to be honest with you, quite a lot of work in developing and identifying uh, a number of different strains and then narrowed that down until he found a strain that was a bit we call the survival of the fittest uh, principle, a strain that was robust but elegant enough uh, and had some unique characteristics to be able to uh, uh, put that into the fermentation process and in a way, that's how the protein brewery was um, was was born. Which was in he started the work actually in the laboratory uh, eight years uh, beforehand. So in 2011, and uh, and then the first part of the uh, uh, investment process started in uh, capitalised in 2020 uh, with the Series A uh, investment round uh, that he took the business through. Uh-huh.
1: Um, Could we set the scene a little bit by explaining um, the need? This is the overarching problem that we're facing, explaining the need for alternative proteins and and I guess where your particular um, breed of alternative proteins fits into that.
0: Yeah, good question. Well, I hope by now most of us recognize that uh, uh, at some point, let's call that point uh, 2050, at some point we're going to be in a position where the uh, food sources that we have today will simply be inappropriate and insufficient to be able to feed the global, a global population. Even by 2030, we are facing into some of those challenges. So in some senses, you know, this journey from animal uh, protein to plant protein, of course, already started. And I know uh, I was part of that journey prior to coming to the protein brewery. But if you think about where we are around plant proteins, we still need some alternatives that we need to bring to the marketplace to help fuel uh, the next requirement, the next generation. Uh, Proteins that are going to be produced in a much more efficient way. So to give you an idea, if you look at um, the journey from animal to plant protein and then to uh, fungal uh, protein, you kind of start with a a principle of a hundred times fungal fermentation or or alternative protein, a hundred times less uh, impact, lower impact, uh, on land and water use versus animal, if you compare it to beef, to cattle, wow. and then even versus plant proteins, uh, something like at least uh, three, four times uh, lower uh, than growing soya, where you're using a lot of land, a lot of water, and pea protein in particular, where what we see is a uh, is an issue around uh, consumers calling out taste and texture around pea protein, it simply won't manage to take us i think forward into the next generation it won't suffice and it's not an easy crop to grow so i think this you know using uh, a fungal fermentation process is simply the next stage in the journey in the evolution in order to be able to feed the world by 2050
1: Certainly there's a lot of excitement, I think, from the VC community about um, fermentation-derived proteins. So in layman's terms, I mean, you've said already you're you're using a fungal biomass fermentation. In layman's terms, what are the key steps involved in that? And I guess how does your technology differ to traditional fermentation that's been around for thousands of years, as well as other forms of fermentation, such as precision fermentation?
0: So it's a relatively straightforward process. And I think most of us, uh, uh, even if you make uh, kind of bread at home, or you understand the process of fermentation around yogurt, or indeed alcohol, as you call out. It. It's been in the marketplace uh, for thousands of years. It's a similar process. So we start the fermentation process with a, a starter culture. Uh, we feed that, uh, uh, that, and that's the fungus, we, the strain. We feed the strain, and today we feed it with glucose. Uh, we know in the future we can feed it with other sea salts, but that's our carbon source. We feed it, it grows. Uh, in a sense, we kind of encourage it to grow. Of course, once it's grown, we then have to harvest it. Uh, so we harvest it on the basis of taking it through a pasteurisation step because we don't want it to uh, continue to grow. We need to stop that growth. We then uh, obviously have to rinse, wash the product. Uh, then we put it through a, a kind of a press, so we take the water out of it. Uh, we dry it, uh, and then we and then we grind it. We mill it into a dry powder. I think the the one of the unique characteristics of what we do. Is the fact that we have a dry powder that gives us more versatility in our utilization, our application uh, than other mycelium, so than other uh, uh, fermented, uh, fermented mycelium. The difference between biomass and uh, and precision fermentation, in particular, is that if you look at what bio, look at what we're doing from a biomass perspective, we utilise the whole ingredient. We call that whole cell, so nothing wasted. There is no waste stream. Uh, because pretty much all of that material is used. It's a complete natural process. Precision fermentation is different. You are actually creating a compound and you're using that compound, which is different. Uh, So a part of it, we use the whole thing and that's very natural. And as we know, precision fermentation is in essence, genetically modified. That's not what we do around the protein brewery. So pretty natural. I think there's a a very clear message about biomass fermentation the process we use. It's simple, it's pretty elegant, and it's very natural. We don't add anything to it.
1: So the end product that you make, Fermatine, I mean, what are some of the features that make that stand out as a product um, for the food ingredients market?
0: Yeah, so a couple of things really, really significant about it. It has a, a very high quality protein uh, uh, encapsulated in this ingredient. Uh, it's closer, in terms of its essential amino acid profile, it's closer to meat uh, than any other plant protein uh, available. And that's important in terms of muscle building. You often hear uh, vegans, vegetarians talk about building muscle. It's a very important part of how we as humans uh, build muscle. Uh, The second thing is it has a a very high fiber content, uh, again, versus other plant proteins. So 35%, 35%, 36% uh, fiber. And that fiber, of course, uh, brings uh, that dietary fiber, brings some real benefits. It has two uh, specificities, beta-glucan and chitosan. Beta-glucan linked to immunity and chitosan linked to lowering cholesterol. So it has some real nutritional benefits. Um, It clearly has a low carbohydrate uh, 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 part of its nutritional profile and very low, uh, hardly any uh, fat in it. So nutritionally, it's very, very, um, it's very interesting for the food industry. Uh, using it in the dry format means that we have a variety of ways to be able to use the product, to utilize the product, some specifically in the baked goods and snacks arena. And that's where we've started our journey uh, in our commercialization, go-to-market strategy in bringing this product into some of those products applications that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find nutritional value. So through protein and fiber in particular.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, of the other applications that it could be for, um, what do you envisage? Are we talking meats? And, and, and does the production process have to adapt in any way to to meet these end uses?
0: I think that one of the key questions when I came to this business was, okay, how do we determine what we want to do uh, and and how we manage that portfolio, that product portfolio? Because in lots of ways with this material, the opportunities are endless. But of course, you can't just do everything all at the same time. So we've been quite specific about our entry point, point which I've said is, is baked goods. I think the snacks arena is ripe for adding uh, and bringing nutritional uh, density and nutritional value. And that's one of the conversations that we're already, uh, we're already starting. Of course, there are a whole host of other applications that will come over time. And that's part of our innovation pipeline, part of our uh, thinking. In most instances, we will not need to do a lot of cha- make a lot of change to the product uh, uh, process or the production process. Um, but that depends, I think, on some of the other applications that we venture into. That's also part of the conversation, of course, with some of our um, key customers uh, that we're starting to work with. And I think in this environment, it's very important that we start this journey with them. We start to understand what it is they're looking for because we're a B2B uh, player. So we start to work closely to understand what needs are they looking for? What particular product characteristics are they looking for? And then we start to work collaboratively and collectively together. Uh, And and on that basis, we also bring more knowledge to the table so that it, it, it enables our acceleration.
1: It was one of the articles I wrote last year. I was surprised at the size of the sports, nutrition and snacking nice. markets. So it's a good area to get in. Now, fungal biomass fermentation holds great uh, potential for addressing um, nutrition challenges by providing a sustainable and protein-rich food source. Now, so what in what, what ways does fermentation-based protein production compare to traditional methods in terms of resource utilization? I know you mentioned water, land and energy earlier.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we start with uh, if we start with other uh other plant based proteins um in reality it is it is more water efficient more land efficient it's very compact if you imagine two three or six fermenters those ferment fermentation tanks uh, are pretty compact so they don't take very much uh land. The fact is from a water perspective we utilize although it's a water intensive process we're we're reusing and recycling that water, so our waste stream is very limited. If you look at that in uh, in in farming, uh, whether it's animal or indeed uh, plant based uh, farming, of course you have some significant waste streams. Uh, pea, soy, much of that ends up in animal feed uh, in a rather un, you know unsatisfactory kind of side stream. In reality, here we don't have a side stream. We utilise all of the biomass. And we make uh, my intention, part of the ambition here is to almost see if we can get to a zero footprint on the planet so that what we do here is leave no mark uh, in terms of our uh, production uh, and and our utilisation of resources.
1: That's very important in the uh, food industry for obvious reasons.
0: I think it becomes part of us, you know, it's the ambition around a circular economy in reality. And I think upcycling has been, as has now, I think, become a very important factor when we are talking to some of the large CPG companies that we are talking to. They're interested in what footprint are their suppliers leaving on the planet and how can they choose to work with uh, those businesses that have that at the heart of what they do. It's not easy. You know, it isn't easy. You have to plan, you have to work hard at it. But fundamentally, I genuinely and personally believe that the food industry has a responsibility because, you know, the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions is through the food industry. Many people think that's by traveling on an aeroplane or by doing other things. But in reality, the choices that we make as consumers on the food and drink that we consume on a daily basis has the biggest impact to our planet.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you done any calculations in terms of GHG um, reductions or resource yeah, usages we- associated in you know, life cycle analyses, et cetera?
0: Indeed, Nick, we have. So in the very early days, there was a life cycle analysis that was conducted, indeed, with the same agency partner that I'd used when I was working with Alpro. So uh, kind of well known, based in the Netherlands, um, that LCA uh, is being repeated uh, now because obviously we're in a different facility. We're in a scale up facility we need to therefore rerun that, um, but we're confident uh, of, of of what it shows. I mean, there's a quite a long dossier uh, that goes alongside that, uh, but it's very important that we will be able to publish that. We can, will make that available for um, uh, for people to see, and we're very proud of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned your new facility there. Scaling up poses several challenges as transitioning from the lab to pilot scale and then onto industrial scale production introduces many, many complexities. So what is the capacity of your facility in Breda uh, yeah. and what are your plans for moving to the next level? How do you see that production model unfolding? sort of Localised supply or supply in the world from one unit?
0: I love this question because really this is about envisioning for the future. Uh, if I think about where the business has come from, uh, in the pilot plant, so kind of next to the laboratory, we were producing, let's call it, you know, a few kilos on a weekly basis. Uh, now we've moved to the, the, the demonstration plant. So our first kind of scale up plant uh, that was facilitated and financed by the first fundraising round that we went through. Um, we can now get to thousands. So around 2000 tons annually is what we're going to be able to uh, produce. We're in the early days of that, uh, but we're live. Uh, indeed, we are manufacturing product. We're scaling it as we speak. So we've been through the commissioning phase last year. And I think it's interesting when you talk about how you move from a pilot uh, to uh, the first stage of industrializing, it's really, it, you know, it, it, takes, it takes expertise both in the fermentation uh, science, but also then in making sure that your downstream process all of the components in that downstream process need to kind of synchronize. And that also takes uh, practice. It takes experimenting. It's a new strain. So on that basis, we have to rerun and experiment as we do. But I'm pleased to say we're through the commissioning journey. We've still got some modifications, mechanical, uh, and some fermentation modifications that we're making. But we're up and running, and we are indeed producing uh, in in specification uh, for Motin. Uh, that we are now selling.
1: I mean, uh, I mean an important aspect uh, with alternative proteins is obviously price parity. So how can cost effectiveness um, be achieved in a, a larger scale production of your, your product?
0: I think it's, it, is re- it really comes down to yield and output. So some of that is through the elegance that we have uh, and the strain that the founder selected, the elegance of the process, the simplicity of the process, the one thing that's very important here is that we are not, we have a non-sterile process, and that's very important because it means our, our yield and output are faster. So it's a very fast, accelerated turnaround. But it also means that we don't um, we we have cap- less capital, lower capital intensity, which of course makes it a financial uh, an attractive financial proposition, and that leads us to an, it, it, it leads us to uh, being able to scale at a lower cost. And I think if we really want to make an impact uh, globally uh, by bringing this material to the marketplace, it needs to be cost competitive with other plant proteins. It needs to be scalable. Otherwise, indeed, we end up being just a small, you know, a small business. And that's not the ambition here.
1: Mm -hmm. What economic factors contribute to the competitiveness of um, fermentation based protein production compared to um, traditional sources, protein sources?
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, in reality, if you ask most industry leaders at the moment, I think the one, the, you know, the one defining characteristic, of course, is energy cost. Um, that that's true in every industry. It's true in fermentation, uh, also. What's interesting about our process is that we that we will be able to be very efficient in our ener- in our energy consumption, and again, that's part of the zero footprint on the planet. But of course, it also leads to a uh, a lower cost ingredient, uh, if we can utilize some of the energy, re- if you like, reutilize some of the energy that we produce through the fermentation process in the rest of, uh, in, in order to, uh, to manage the rest of the process. So it's not completely net zero, but it's getting close to it.
1: hmm now, you mentioned um, and touched upon uh, investment earlier. Now, and the investors provide the financial means to drive innovation and scale up operations, while regulatory support ensures the industry operates within those established standards, fostering confidence and uh, credibility. Now, you achieved that big raise. I think you said it was 22 million euros. That was in 2020. So where are you now in your funding journey?
0: I think, um, yeah, a fascinating question. I think, to be honest, if you ask most CEOs of uh, scale-up businesses, they would probably say, actually, you're always a bit in fundraising mode. Because uh, because in order to accelerate, of course, you need to have uh, a secure financial runway. Look, we're very lucky in the protein brewery. We have three uh, first-class investors. Um, they are massively committed to the business. That's why they went through the Series A raise. But we're just about to start a Series B uh, raise. So our next uh, significant raise we're just about to go to the marketplace uh, with that proposition, and I'm very confident that there'll be a number of new investors who will also want to join us on, on you know, in in this mission uh, for the protein brewery. So, um, an invitation, I would say, uh, to any investors that might read or see or hear this, uh, be interested in hearing from you.
1: Yeah, oh, you must know some people. Obviously, it's not just the VC community. <laughs> investment comes from all for all corners, doesn't it? So, I mean, how challenging is the market at the moment in terms of raising capital?
0: Well, I think, yeah, it's it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think it depends on two things. I mean, overall, let me say, I think 2023 was much more difficult. Coming out of 22 into 2023, we had a number of economic factors that were, I mean, globally very difficult. I mean, you've only got to see, you know, kind of war in the Ukraine, putting a squeeze on energy uh, consumption and pricing, a high inflation economy uh, pretty much everywhere. I mean, certainly Europe more impacted than the United States, uh, driven by energy uh, largely, but not an easy set of circumstances. also some geopolitical uh, challenges going on. I think some of that we start to see now some early signs of that settling. Um, It's early in that process, but inflation already starting to get under control. I think in all parts of the environment or the economy, we see some green shoots. Um, And I think if you indeed have a very interesting proposition, value proposition, that ticks a number of boxes for investors, they can see their route through, their way forward now to providing that investment on an ongoing basis in kind of medium, longer term. And I think that's very, very important. So you have to be able to have a big ambition. And that big ambition really comes through scaling a technology that lends itself to bringing a, a low cost ingredient, a new ingredient to the marketplace. So I'm, I'm both optimistic, uh, but also very conscious of making sure that we're very clear about our journey and where we are in that journey
1: hmm And uh, you mentioned uh, new new ingredients there now, regulations. That's another challenge for any company in this sector. So what um, challenges exist in bringing fermentation-enabled proteins to market? And, and how are you addressing those? I guess you've got various dossiers being submitted around the world.
0: Yes, I think uh, it's probably one of the most challenging uh, aspects because many of the other, uh, uh, if you like, challenges you can overcome. I think here, there's a very clear kind of uh, delineation between uh, the regime in Europe versus the regime in other parts of the world. And I would call out here, different in the US, uh, different in uh, in Asia uh, through uh, Singapore, very different to Europe. So Europe, a lot more conservative, if you like, governed by, uh, EFSA uh, is governed by the EU and EU practices. I think, all of the regulatory authorities struggled during COVID to make sure, and post COVID, to make sure that they had sufficient resources, because it does come down to people resource. But interestingly, it's been quite a struggle together with the fact that there are more new uh, novel food dossier applications. So we're we're kind of caught here between wanting, I think, globally to bring new uh, food ingredients to the marketplace but actually not having the means in order to be able to accelerate them. And, it, and I actually, in the UK, I called out in, uh, in, in, in a trade publication last year, I did an article that I wrote where I was really um, calling for action, uh, certainly uh, from the Food Standards Authority in the UK. Since coming out of uh, the EU, there is a, a real opportunity for the UK to be able to move forward. And unfortunately, they're still lagging behind. And I I was really calling that out. I think some of what happens in Asia gives some real clues as to how we could accelerate that on a number of different uh, uh, novel food dossiers. We often look for all of the differences as opposed to starting with the similarities of new products or new foodstuffs that come along. Let's start with the similarities and then take those similarities and then focus on just the minor differences, where the regulatory authorities, of course, should look for absolute food safety and proof points uh, that they that they should allow a new ingredient to marketplace. So, I'm very proud of the food industry in Europe. I want it to stay as safe as it is, but I would urge them to think about uh, bringing new uh, uh, new ideas and a new way of working, so that we can all accelerate. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I attended the Regulating the Future of Food conference in Barcelona late last year and um, certainly EFSA were there and um, they are under-resourced at the moment and hopefully they'll be addressing that at some point. Now, where are you with your own regulatory pathway then? I know you were previously hoping for EU approval and US approval to have been secured. It must be close now, surely.
0: So um, it's closer in uh, in Europe, uh, in uh, in the US. So today, as I said, we're already selling in the United States, so we have license to sell uh, in the in the US, uh, and that's why we're moving forward uh, and, and accelerating around the United States. Uh, we've uh, we've obviously submitted a dossier in every single geography. Uh, we're waiting on the final response back from Asia. Uh, that's likely to come, I I believe, earlier than Europe, and we're really waiting for the next uh, response back uh, from EFSA on our dossier. So we're in play. I would say, Nick. Um, and in a way, we, we wait for the authority to come back to us, uh, hopefully with an approval soon.
1: Mm-hmm. What's been your experience of working with those regulators? I know in um, Singapore, the Singapore Food Agency are deemed to be more proactive than um, other um, authorities around the world. I know um, USDA and FDA are um, also proactive of you know, issuing pre-submission advice, etc. So it's complete contrast to, I guess at the moment, FSA and, um, and EFSA in and the EU.
0: Yeah, I think you, I mean, in a sense, you call it out. So some of this is about communication. Um, you know, systems, if we want to change the system, the more open and communicative we can be uh, between, you know, the authority and those businesses that are bringing new, uh, new ideas, new products to the marketplace, the more we get to some transparent conversation, the quicker it will move. Uh, and that would be the call out that I would make, which is, if you look at how the FDA work or you look at how uh, Asia, so uh, Singapore Food Authority works, you get a lot more uh, guidance back. So they never tell you exactly what to do. That's not their job, but they can help guide you. Uh, That's not the same from a European perspective where it's where, where to be honest with you, it's it's a lot less instructive. It's a lot less collaborative. And that would be the invitation. I don't think it's about uh, telling any uh, food business what to do. But it is about helping to suggest ideas and be open to those ideas.
1: I guess the European market has its own challenges because it's not just EFSA saying yes, it has to go to the EU and then the individual member states have to approve it, and then there have to be a certain percentage of member states approving it before it can um, before it can proceed. So it's a minefield.
0: It is a minefield, but that that that's a bit my point on on trying to get to. The points of similarity or comparison if there are because we're going to run into this problem on novel food in a number of different uh, uh, instances uh, this dossier that we have is not the only one that if we're not careful gets you know kind of gets caught up in that. so I think it's about a a, a different way of working and thinking about focusing much more on where are there comparisons that are already in the marketplace. That are proven and if you like satisfactory from a a safety regulation, regulatory perspective and then focus on the small differences and how we can address those and make the uh, uh, and, and give clarity and reassurance around those that would that would shorten the process, but I think it would also uh help both parts to focus on what really matters
1: mm-hmm. I guess global harmonization might be a... Uh... <laughs> Might be a good route forward, but that's uh, not going to happen anytime soon. No. no. Um, before we wrap up, market validation is essential to understand consumer acceptance, market trends, and the commercial viability of products such as yours, Fermatine. Um It's one thing producing a product, then you've got to get it to the industry itself. So how are you going to reach that target audience for your product uh, products? What What are your distribution channels?
0: Yeah, so our go-to-market strategy is very clearly to um, uh, to focus, if you like, on a application-by-application basis. That's why we're so clear about starting in the uh, baked goods and and snacks arena. Uh, As you can imagine, we are now talking to a number of uh, customers. uh, That includes distributors, uh, other routes to market in that arena. We're um, we're active in that space now. Um, I think it's very important that with some of the larger uh, strategic customers, as I would say, we start that conversation early, The process, of course, takes longer. There's more touch points in those organizations. Um, But indeed, the opportunity is usually bigger in terms of scaling. However, smaller customers often come through distributors, and we've got a very uh, strong distributor partner that we've appointed in North America. They often come through that route and indeed are actually quite agile and interested in bringing new ingredients to the marketplace, so new ideas, so it's about doing both in parallel. That's that's really our, go, uh, our, our go-to-market our go strategy. And so far, that's serving us well.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of the competitive landscape, how does it look for the um, fungal biomass fermented products in comparison to traditional um, products? I mean, are there key players or emerging companies dominating the market?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm delighted to say that this whole space in what I would call the the fungi kingdom, which is obviously different to kind of animals and plants, but this whole space has really started to open up. Um, I think pretty clearly, Corn were the very first. Uh, they were the first pioneer in this space. But now there are many other businesses uh, uh, coming along with different propositions. Um, I think that there is a question of, of awareness. Uh, I think if you ask most consumers today, uh, we would kind of understand the word fungi. We might not necessarily associate it in, in the way that we're currently seeing products come along. But if you say mushroom... Uh, that probably in a sense is a lot is a lot better understood so the fungi protein association has been set up uh we're a member of that uh, as are a number of other players globally uh, and together our mission of course is to raise awareness uh, to make sure that there's a kind of a level playing field as it were with other uh, plant proteins but also to work together to kind of drive this this new generation um I think if I if I compare the protein brewery to some of the other players in the marketplace, because we're a dry ingredient, that's what we do through our process, we're somewhat different. Uh, and we've and that kind of plays out in the application uh, strategy that we've got, uh, which is somewhat different. But I think in this particular arena, uh, actually I welcome uh, the growth in this space. I think it's it's highly it's been highly undervalued for what it can bring. And frankly, I'm proud to be part of that, you know, the new generation of, uh, of alternative proteins alongside other colleagues in this space.
1: Yeah. Um, what about the consumer? How are they um perceiving this particular product and, and what factors do you think influence their acceptance of or rejection of um fungal biomass products?
0: Yeah, I think if you if you say fermented product to consume, fermented, I mean the concept of fermentation, I think well understood. Um, people recognize that, you know, whether it's beer or it's yogurt, uh, it's, a kind of principle around making bread. I think there's an understanding of fermentation that's seen as uh, something that's positive. And also there are some definite, uh, uh, digestive benefits, uh, around, uh, uh, eating, adding fermented uh, products to your diet. Um, I think when, when you put the combination of, uh, fungi and fermented together, I think it sparks some curiosity uh, from a consumer perspective, but once they, but, but actually fungi and mushrooms, I suppose, are kind of well understood. So the, the beauty here is that it's very natural. Uh, and that's the principle around biomass fermentation because it's such a natural process, um, using, as I said, all of the material. So I think we're on a journey in the same way that I would say 10 years ago, uh, plant based as a term or a plant-based diet was relatively uh, unknown. Today, of course, well, it was for people that were lactose intolerant, generally. If you think about that now, and that change now, I mean, I think it's well understood. So it's, it's a journey, but it's an exciting one to be on.
1: Mm-hmm. Talking of uh, exciting, um, Sue, so you, you obviously pay close attention to other areas of the, the alternative proteins market. Is there anything particularly that stands out for you as uh, innovative in other areas?
0: Um, I, well, I think there's a lot of development in uh, in bringing uh, kind of new uh, sources uh, to the marketplace and starting to establish how do you through different ferment. I mean, I think fermentation is definitely a hot space. Whether that indeed is precision fermentation or biomass, there's a, there's I think a lot to be gained in thinking about how do we uh, utilize some of that technology. How do we refine that technology? Uh, and how do, we, how do we start combining it with maybe even animal products? I think there's always been a view that it's either non-animal or animal. But if I think about the journey to 2050, I can certainly envisage that some of these ingredients or uh, products could well be combined to provide innovative solutions.
1: And uh, finally, Sue, how are you going to differentiate yourselves? I mean, it is a crowded market. The alternative proteins market is crowded. Um, How are you going to differentiate yourselves and and your products? How are they going to stand out?
0: I think there's one uh, very, very unique characteristic, uh, which I haven't really focused on here uh, up until now, and that's about neutrality. So if indeed uh, you're familiar with plant proteins and some of the flavor profile they have, uh, for some consumers, that's very off-putting. Um, here, what we've got, this ingredient is completely neutral. It is tasteless. It's odorless. It's uh, colorless. It's very easy to utilize uh, in terms of de- you know, developing different products. And that together it's nutritional pro- with its nutritional profile will be the defining characteristics uh, that I think make this special and make it different. Uh, and enable it to be used in a number of different uh versatile uh applications
1: so it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. I know you're a very very busy um person, so really appreciate this uh, 35, thirty five forty minutes or so that you've been with us today um, we will be following all of your progress this year and um yeah look forward to updates very very soon
0: thanks very much indeed Nick I've really enjoyed the uh the time talking to you thanks indeed. Thank you thank you for listening to the protein production technology international podcast we hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices transforming how we produce protein don't forget to subscribe to ppti magazine and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates stay tuned for more exciting episodes